This is the Detection at Scale podcast, a new show designed to help security practitioners succeed at managing and responding to threats at a modern cloud scale. As the volume of data increases and the attack surface expands, it's never been more important to stay ahead of the curve. Each episode will feature interviews with leading security practitioners, thought leaders, and company founders who are building the next generation of security tools. I'm your host, Jack Naglieri, founder and CEO of Panther Labs. Now let's get into today's show. All right, good morning. I'm here with Frederick Lee, also known as Flea. He's the Chief Information Security Officer over at Gusto, which enables 200,000 plus small and medium-sized businesses to pay onboard insure and provide health benefits for their teams. We actually use Gusto and you know are big fans of it. Uh, as a side, before Gusto Flea previously headed up security at Square and held senior security roles at Bank of America, Twilio NetSuite. He holds a degree in engineering from the University of Oklahoma. Um, Mr. Flea, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jack. Happy to be here this morning. And yeah, thanks for the uh, kudos at Gusto. Like, uh, as we like to describe to people, we think of Gusto as more of like a, a people platform because it really is about helping small and medium sized businesses provide and do everything that actually means that you take care of their employees. Because we know if you take care of your employees, your employees can take care of the customers. And ultimately, we can actually you know, benefit the world via that. And in particular, because of some of the things that we provide access to for small, medium-sized businesses, things like 401k, health insurance, et cetera, that previously was out of reach for them. So you know, we really did feel like we had an opportunity to, for lack of a better word, kind of democratize some of those big business benefits, care, et cetera, that people have and give you know, small, medium-sized businesses, the same opportunity and the same competitiveness. So. Yeah, it was really helpful for us very early on. And I think I got set up on Gusto in like 2018 when the company was, you know, five-ish people or maybe even less than that. And <laughs> it definitely helped us go from zero to one quite quickly. And, you know, we're still using it close to 70 people. So it's been a good journey so far. So I was reading, like I was saying a second ago, I was reading some of your posts over the weekend on LinkedIn. And one thing I noticed about you that I really respect and I thought was fairly unique is just how open you are about your own experiences at Gusto, your own performance even. I mean, you famously had shared your performance review publicly and I thought that was such an incredible move just for promoting transparency. So I think for me, the thing I wanted to ask you is like, what makes a great leader to you and what makes a great security leader more specifically to you? Oh, wow. That is a, that's a curveball question. I love it. I love this question. You know, one of the things I think about when I think about leaders is somebody who actually inspires you, right? And I think sometimes, especially in the tech world, we kind of confuse this idea of somebody being a manager versus being a leader. The nice thing also about being a leader is anybody can be a leader, like literally anybody. And I would argue say everybody should be in some capacity in their life. But when I think about, you know, great leaders, though, it really is somebody who can actually help inspire you and say like, hey, make you want to do more or push something to, to a different level. I do believe that leaders do need to be transparent because when you think about somebody as a leader, you really is somebody that you should be inspired to follow. And you can't follow somebody without trust. You can't trust somebody that you don't know about. And, you know, you kind of like, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, performance reviews and things like that. I really do think transparency is key and critical for a leader because you have to be open to sharing with uh, people around you about how you're doing, what you're thinking, how you actually want to progress. Transparency is so powerful just because the more transparent I am, the more context I can give people that I'm empowering and working with. And the more context they actually have, the more freedom that they can have. 
Like in an ideal world, your leader should be somebody who is helping you do the best and be the best that you can be. Not necessarily just the things that a leader wants you to do, but actually bringing out like that high level performance out of you. And I don't know if you can actually accomplish that if you are micromanaging or being more of a dictator style, et cetera. And I think transparency just goes a long way because at the end of the day, most of the people who actually work with me, and I intentionally say work with me, not for me, the people who actually work with me, they do their jobs better when they have the most context and they're always are going to know better than I will, right? Because generally they're going to be closer to the problems. And that's part of the reason for, you know, kind of like my push for transparency. I think within security, there's actually a couple of things that I think are unique And this isn't the case for all security leaders, but I can tell you things that I like to see in security leaders. I'd like to see security leaders that came up from the trenches. And I know that that might be a little bit controversial. And this isn't to say that not anybody can actually be in security, because I honestly believe every single person has the aptitude, capacity to be a security professional. But I do know from a leadership standpoint, it is far more impactful if you are being led and your security program is being led by somebody who's done security before. And, you know, in previous generations, you would normally see a security leader or CISO or somebody like that. It's like, oh, well, maybe they actually just worked their way up through management, right? They, they were just yet another pony-haired boss. They knew how to balance budgets. They knew how to yell at people, et cetera but maybe not so much about how to actually understand and think about risk. And I think you can only be an effective security leader if you fundamentally understand risk. And that comes from being, you know, boots on the ground, actually dealing with some of these security problems. And that can be either, hey, your boots on the ground is maybe a compliance manager, a compliance analyst. You could have been boots on the ground as more of like a SOC analyst, you know, somebody maybe reversing malware or something like that. You could have been boots on the ground as somebody actually dealing with AppSec. But all of those things kind of bring you together with a central focus around risk and risk management. And that to me is critical to be effective in security. Otherwise, you often just end up with these weird security theater type, you know, scenarios, or you end up in a scenario where your security team is pretty much just a compliance checkbox type organization. There are so many things in there that I would love to comment on and, you know, I wholeheartedly (laughs) agree with all of it. I think going back to the, you know, a leader, someone who inspires you versus a manager, right? Like the whole concept of like a manager just focused on the work and the leader focused on the mission. That's a very like stark difference that I personally care a lot about as well. And then I loved your point about security leaders coming up as practitioners, having that context. And the way I like to think about that concept as well is like seek to understand and be understood. Yep. It's very similar, right? It's like you need to understand the experiences of the people that you're managing so you can effectively manage and lead them. A great example of that where, you know, that practitioner difference comes into play is things like just analyst burnout right? Like Mm. alert fatigue, your stereotypical kind of like pointy haired boss that didn't come up through the ranks of security, that concept of alert fatigue may not actually occur to them. And how do you actually build an organization that that can, you know, scale and actually deal with that? How do you think about products? How do you actually think about your security strategy so that you're not having to deal with some of these things that there were previously issues for those of us in the security industry? Totally. And the other thing that you called out is just around trust, and how trust is so critical for leadership, but also trust is extremely important to run a security organization. That's what the entire thing's built on, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> you have to you have to be very aware of others' trust in you from multiple layers, from the layers of running your team, but also from the layers of partnering with your organization and things like that. Yep. So there's definitely a lot of parallels here to, to talk through. I think the one immediate question I have was, what inspired you to make that jump to become a leader from a practitioner? Oh, yeah, probably the best way to actually describe it. And actually, I've seen this pattern with other security leaders that came from as being practitioners, literally just frustration, 
frustration with the state of the world and then frustration with what you can accomplish as an individual, right? You can be the best security practitioner, but at the end of the day, you still only have two hands, uh, two eyes, two feet, right? And that by itself limits the impact that you can have, whereas you can have a broader impact if you have other people working with you. And obviously, you can actually be, you know, have people actually working with you, even as somebody who's not a leader, but you also get a lot more flexibility if you have an explicit mandate from the company. And that allows you to actually really shape and build the security that you would like to have. And in my case, that, that, that was a scenario. It's like, I was really, really frustrated. You know, it's hopefully not a surprise, especially if somebody's actually, you know, hurting in my talks or, or reading my stuff. I kind of hate old school traditional security. It sucks. It kind of got us where we needed to be, you know, way back in the late 90s, early 2000s, but we kind of stagnated. And yeah, I mean, it just wasn't a great place to be, but I felt like there was an opportunity to start doing things a lot more modern. Doing things that actually are a lot more engineering and technology based, focused on, you know, kind of like that first principle problem solving aspect of security, as opposed to just being driven by things that are compliance, um, et cetera. The other thing that inspired me, I guess, or motivated me to actually be a security leader is oddly enough, being a security leader allows you to kind of play VC to, to some extent. You know, just, you're almost like a mini venture capitalist. And well, let me explain this to you. The reason why it kind of makes you a little mini venture capitalist is that. As a security leader, one of the things you get is you get a budget and you can actually place bets on interesting security teams really, really early. Look at innovative startups. And this isn't a knock against companies like you know Palo Alto or, or some of the others. Like Palo Alto makes, makes great products, but they're so mature and things like that. It's easy for somebody to actually go out and like buy Palo Alto gear. It's not as easy for an IC to say, hey, here's this two-person startup or this five-person startup. They're really on to something. They're actually doing the right thing. Let me actually jump in and get on that ride. And as a security leader, not only can you make a choice to actually use some of these products, but by using these products, you're actually going to make that startup better and more successful. Because at the end of the day, the startup needs customers. And if you can be one of those early customers, you can actually be a true champion for them. And while you don't get, I guess, quote unquote, you know, the monetary dividends that a VC gets, you actually get to see better security companies in the ecosystem. And that's actually been one of my passions. You know, and I used to work at a security company myself. But there are, there's a lot of crappy security companies out there. And we, as security practitioners and security leaders, have an opportunity to change that. We can change that by literally going out and taking bets on some of these smaller, more interesting, more agile, more innovative security companies. Like, I'll give you a great example. You know, when Facebook released OS Query, that was should have been shifting for the industry, right? And for security leaders that were aware, it was an opportunity for them to actually place a bet and essentially invest in some of the companies that are actually forming ecosystems around that tooling. And so it's like, you know, I think things like that make being a security leader really fun and fulfilling. And like I said, part of my motivation was that I was just frustrated. I was frustrated what I could do and I was also frustrated what I saw in the industry. And by making that shift into leadership and being more responsible for security overall, then that actually allowed me to actually do some more innovative things from a security practice standpoint. Yeah, again, I think there's so many things I could comment on here. Like, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything. Um, <laughs> I should be a little contrary and be like, no, I disagree. But um, <laughs> so the idea of being an early adopter, I think, is really interesting because by definition, early adopters are people who take those risks on new technology in order to push their organizations further ahead quicker. And there are a lot of startups out there. There's a lot of venture funding. Obviously, today, the market is quite hot for security. And that's a really great strategy and enables your team to kind of be the, the first users of these tools. Like you said, give the feedback and kind of mold it in a way that is useful to you, but also to others. 
So full agreement on that. The other thing I want to hone in on is this idea of feeling a little bit frustrated. And I relate to that in a lot of ways, but for a slightly different reason. So for me, my journey was I was an analyst and I was trying to do detection at scale at a company like Yahoo and others. And there was just no tool that existed that could help me with that. So I was like, okay, I'm going to become an engineer. And I deployed OS Query. And just to your point of OS Query, you know what I mean? Like it had just come out. We had open-minded people as well running detection. So I got to work with them and, and really play with these new tools. But that was a new piece of tech that did help us push in the right direction towards getting the logs we needed and like understanding things were going on. So yeah, I think that early adopter mindset coupled with the practitioner's mindset definitely puts us in a great place, especially for you and your team at a company like Gusto, which is also a fairly modern technology company, right? I mean, you're kind of coming up in this wave, this next wave of companies and Gusto has been growing quite a lot. So I want to hone a little bit onto your team specifically. So you had security leadership experience from Square. I believe that was your first head of security role. And then joining Gusto, I'm curious, like, how do you typically think about starting a team or really like joining a new company and, and sort of building the security program from zero or close to zero? I would say like building a security team from zero is actually one of the most fun things to do because you don't inherit a lot of security cultural debt and organizational debt. Obviously, you're going to be dealing with, with security technical debt because you're just starting up a team. When I think about building a team, and also, you know, like I, was out, I was the head of security at NetSuite as well. So, so Square wasn't my first rodeo. It was a, definitely a different rodeo. But when I think about how you actually, or at least how I like to approach actually building a team or actually showing up at a company, et cetera, and introducing security or rebuilding security, I generally try to focus on some of those core problem sets and also what the company technical culture looks like. The reality is kind of like at the end of the day, you're more effective as a security practitioner, security team, if you are taking a technology slash engineering based approach towards problem solving, as opposed to taking a pure, just like, hey, here's a bunch of policies written down on paper, yada, 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 yada approach. But in order to be effective, that you really have to understand what the technical organization looks like. Like, how does your IT and infrastructure team, how do they actually deploy tools? What is the, you know, just broader data center infrastructure look like? Or what does your AWS slash cloud infrastructure look like? You want to know how developers build and deploy software because then that gives you an idea of like, hey, where can you actually kind of inject some security touch points? And you also want to know who are some of those people inside of the company that already care about security. I think there's actually this weird myth, or at least occasionally I get this whiff, a myth from other security practitioners that they believe that engineers don't care about security. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. There is always several individuals inside an organization that love and are passionate about security. It just may not be their primary job. But you actually want to go out and actually find those people because there's going to be some of your strong allies that can help you build things, help you actually understand the lay of the land, et cetera. So the first, you know, to summarize, it's like really just going out and actually study what the company is and understand the culture and people of the company. The second thing I think about when regards to creating a security team is what kind of engineers do I want to hire first? And I always start with engineers. And what I mean by that is literally people who are motivated and inclined to build. Because at the end of the day, I feel like security should be a building discipline. We should be there to actually be putting things in place to make the company better and ideally the company faster in some aspect. My preference is don't actually start with software engineers and hire software engineers. The reality is and you know, that at the end of the day, you get so much value out of a software engineer because they can literally just write code for you. They can actually build things. You know, exactly as you said, like, hey, you weren't happy with the detection infrastructure you had um, way back in the day. So you went out and actually built something. And I 
fundamentally believe that that is the future of security. That actually also was the past of security. I think people kind of forget about that, that most security people started out doing some kind of development, maybe weren't classically trained software engineers, but you know we did hack things together and make tools, et cetera. So I think it's actually really critical when you land at a company that he, you know, find out what the company is about, who the you know people are, and start immediately start hiring some software engineers to build you, you know, the security platform and some of that basic security infrastructure you would actually would need. Like even if you think about you know your classic kind of showing up at a company and they already have a SIM or something like that in place. Even with the traditional SIM, well, hey, you have to actually do some normalization. You have to do some other things. There's actually a ton of stuff you still have to build. And if you wait to get software engineers later, you're just going to be further and further behind as opposed to if you actually start with software engineers you know, directly and initially, then you can really leapfrog over some things and you can really accelerate how your security platform is being built out and the kind of tools and, and strategy you can actually go with. So. Yeah, and the emphasis on engineering really comes from this evolution from the 2010s till now from going to cloud, right? Because we're operating at a much bigger scale. We need to write code. We need to automate things. And we need to be able to plug into how our our companies, our underlying companies are moving and growing. So your background, it's really incredible in that you've spent a lot of time in high technology companies. And the thing I'm curious about is, is scaling the organization. So how does the security team keep up with this, like, quote unquote, hyper growth? Yeah, yeah. The way the security team keeps up with hyper growth is to jump on the train instead of jumping in front of the train. Well, what I mean by that is, like, you know, when I talk about this idea of, like, quote unquote, traditional security teams versus modern security teams. So when I, you know, think about traditional security teams, like, oh, maybe that's going to be a financial institution or a government agency. When I think about a modern security team, it's going to be, yeah, something that looks like more like a Silicon Valley, you know, company. I think. You know, Gusto, I mean, obviously, I believe we have your modern security team, but, you know, Square has a great modern security team. Netflix has a great modern security team where all of these teams view themselves as being enablers and part of the product and part of the shipping process. And as I said, like engineers, people can actually write code that actually gets embedded into the product or gets embedded into the infrastructure. Code scales, right? That's part of the reason why we have all these startups that are actually being so successful. You can take five engineers and actually build a product that now can serve people globally. The same thing actually with security teams. And when I say like you need to hop on the train instead of actually getting in front of it, and that really means that, hey, you need to be part of actually building the product and not a part of trying to slow the product down or actually trying to stop things or actually trying to, you know, catch every little small minor security defect. It's better to actually try to build, you know, protective mechanisms into the product or into the train, right? Build things like collision detection for the trains so the you know, train isn't going to slam into a cow or something like that. Build things into the train so that you can detect, hey, there's another train that's going to be coming from the opposite direction and let's actually, you know, switch uh, lines, et cetera. And in the, like, you know, real tangible part of the security side, you have to go, oh, that'd be a security team building things like cryptography infrastructure, crypto services that are easy for the rest of the organization to use and to a point where it's almost invisible and, even more so invisible, but also maybe possibly delightful. You know, building things into the pipeline so the developers themselves have the security tools and security knowledges they need so they can actually, you know, find security defects and resolve those themselves. And it has definitely been my experience that if you give developers, you give engineers the right tools, they will jump on top of security issues. And in particular, they'll jump on the more severe security issues. And I know that other people may have actually tried this themselves and maybe have actually had some friction or some failure. And where I've seen some of the friction and failure is when you as a modern security team are trying to operate like a traditional security team 
and specifically trying to mimic the idea that your job as a security practitioner is to eliminate all risk or to eliminate all you know defects, et cetera, where I don't think that actually can keep up with the scale and the speed of a modern technology group. But what you can do is you can actually give that modern technology team and modern you know development team insight into how to actually fix things quickly. And maybe actually a better way to actually think about it is a modern security team should be focused more on telemetry and resilience than complete risk elimination. One, complete risk elimination is impossible. Two, eliminating all risk can oftentimes mean that you're actually crippled the business because fundamentally what makes a business successful is actually being actually take smart calculated risk and doing things that maybe other people can't do. And that's actually also where I think security teams, especially modern security teams, have a unique opportunity to contribute to the business is by building some of those things from an infrastructure standpoint or from a software standpoint that allows that company to actually take risk that they never could before and even more so take risks that their competitors couldn't have previously. Like, like you think about a company like Gusto, right? We deal with a lot of PII, a lot of sensitive information, et cetera. And we want to continue actually doing that. And we wanted to make that easier for developers, which is why, you know, we built essentially an internal, you know, PII service itself inside of Gusto to properly and securely, you know, manage that, you know, make sure that everything's actually, you know, um, correct from a privacy standpoint, you know, correct from a security standpoint, correct from a monitoring standpoint, make it super easy because now developers can actually take even more chances. They can do more interesting things because fundamentally the security team has offloaded some of that risk, made the tooling easier. I mean, you've probably heard this concept of like building golden paths and, and guardrails, et cetera. But yeah, it actually allows the, the rest of the business to actually operate at scale and also allows us to still operate with a fairly nimble, agile security team. Like I don't want to be in a scenario where I have to build a security team that's going to be 300, 500 people. That doesn't seem like a lot of fun to me. I think it's a lot of fun, though, to actually build a really, really lightweight, you know, high-intensity, you know, engineering-first security organization that can build scalable security solutions, scalable detection platforms, you know, scalable vulnerability insight platforms, et cetera, for developers. So on the topic of partnering with engineering and building solutions that make it just extremely frictionless, does security sit within engineering at Gusto or is it a separate organization? Talk to me a little about that. Yep. So we sit within, <laughs> it's an interesting scenario. So I report directly to the CTO. And so we are part of the engineering organization. Our mandate, however, is for the entire company. But the benefit of actually being part of engineering, and I never want to lose this, and I would encourage all security teams, if you can, to move into the engineering organization because one, it aligns you with the pain points of the org that direct your survey, right? And you get a lot more credibility with engineers and you get more buy-in when they also know that, hey, you're part of my department. You're part of my group. We have a shared destiny, a shared mandate, and oftentimes shared pain. So like, yeah, we go through the same build pipeline that the other engineers at Gusto go through. And so what that means is that if we introduce something into the pipeline that creates a lot of friction, we suffer from it. Right. And so, you know, it builds immediate empathy for the groups that you're dealing with. And that empathy goes a long way towards getting buy-in. And, you know, ultimately getting that engineering buy-in, once you're actually one of their engineers, getting the rest of the company on board, at least in my experience, is just much easier. And then obviously I have the bias that I work here in Silicon Valley and most of the companies I work for are engineering first type companies. You know, maybe it would be different if I worked in another organization, but so far it still is my belief that engineering is the best org that you be in. 
you get a lot more in touch with the technology. You also get a lot more in touch with the implementers of that technology. So what's the mission of your team specifically? Do you have a mission statement? Yes, 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 yes. The mission of our team, and maybe it's actually a two-pronged thing. The ultimate mission for us overall is to make the most trustworthy platform for consumer PII. And we intentionally use the term trustworthy because it's a little bit touchy-feely and ambiguous, right? So I can tell you about the privacy, the technical privacy guarantees we can give people, the technical security guarantees we can actually give people. But when it comes to dealing with humans and dealing with things like humans' data, and at Gusto, we kind of view ourselves, like I said, we're a people platform. We view ourselves as data custodians. When you think about trustworthy, it also evokes kind of an emotional response. Because you know it when you feel it, right? And so we not only want people to objectively know that their data is secure and private on Gusto, we want them to emotionally feel that as well. So that you feel like, hey, I have confidence when I'm operating with Gusto. I have confidence in actually storing, you know, this health data. I have confidence in actually storing, you know, this payment data. I have confidence in actually, you know, giving people payroll, et cetera. And so that's where the idea of actually trustworthy comes in. The more simple you know, how we actually view our mission internally and, and what is maybe more our day-to-day mantra is this notion of what we just call find yes. We solidly believe that our job inside of security is to make the impossible possible. If there's some kind of crazy idea, something that looks scary or something like that that somebody wants to do, it's our job to actually figure out how to do it. So like, hey, if somebody decides, like, hey, you know, we want to create an API for other companies to actually build like a payroll type solution with, you know, Gusto Web Services. That requires a lot of things like, hey, well, wait a second, we're going to have somebody external to the ecosystem now dealing with this sensitive information. Well, what can we do on the security team to make that less risky? What can we do to actually build something that, that allows the company to do more things? And like I said, we just encapsulate that as this idea of just finding yes. And, and I think if you're aligned with finding yes, one, you become a significant value add to the company overall. Um, two, I believe it makes security more enjoyable. Like I love building things. I love, you know, finding paths forward. You know, finding yes is the difficult problem. It's so easy to say no. And it kind of bugs me that there's so many lazy security people that just view their job as just being the cops and saying like, oh, no, you can't do this. You can't do that. And it's just more enjoyable and more interesting if you're a security team that is building and being part of the solution as opposed to being negative. And then third, you just get more buy-in from the rest of the company when you do need to say no. Like, yeah, like so there definitely are things that just shouldn't be done. But if you're a security team who overall is a find yes type security team, meaning that you're generally seeking to get good solutions, help people ship, allow more activity, those times when you do need to say no, people immediately recognize and trust that decision. Because like, oh, well, hey, you know, Flea's security team at Gusto, yeah, they allow us to do all these other things. They help us build all these products. You know, they're so great to work with. Oh, here's this one thing that they really want us to not do. Or here's this one thing they really want us to do. Just get a a lot more buy-in. So what makes you trust someone or something? I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but if you had to break it down, how would you do it? Oh, wow. So I'll give you just my quick flippant answer. I trust people. I don't trust computers. Um. (laughs) So, and there actually is a reason that you approach the problem from that angle. One, it actually really forces you to actually focus on what are the true underlying technical risks you actually need to address, right? And if you immediately just kind of say like, hey, everybody's untrustworthy, I can't trust my coworkers, I can't trust my end users, yada, 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 you're just going to have a really, really bad time. 
And it's going to make it difficult to actually focus in on the right kind of problems and the right kind of telemetry to actually look for in regards to actually finding anomalous slash bad activity. When you focus more on this idea, it's like, hey, I don't trust devices, I don't trust computers, et cetera, well, then you can actually focus a lot more on some of those core fundamental security problems. You can say like, oh, hey, I need this kind of telemetry to actually give me the right attestation that this device is okay to operate with this service. You know, I need this kind of telemetry to understand, hey, this login that came from this location is legit or, hey, it's anomalous behavior. But, you know, the kind of like the classic human trust aspect is, yeah, I do. I try, I try to trust people on, on first interaction and just, and maybe it's a little bit Pollyanna-ish, but I do believe that most humans, especially one-to-one, want to be good people and they want to do the right thing. And now I do look at behavior and observe, you know, behavior and things like that and to make patterns based off of that. So yeah, if somebody is constantly it's like, oh, well, hey, flee, yeah, I'm, I'm going to patch this system. And they said it for the last 12 months and they didn't. When they tell me the next month, on month 13, I'm probably going to say like, ah, oh, you know what? Historically, you just haven't really done this. So I'm not going to bet the farm on the fact you're going to, you know, implement something or do patching or, or, you know, change your behavior. So yeah, just in general, I default try to trust humans. By default, I don't trust machines. And I like to allow historical data to actually guide my decisions, both with humans and with machines. Machines, there's a lot more scrutiny around historical behavior, though. And, and that's more looking for and setting patterns of normal. And what I mean by normal doesn't necessarily mean good, but just consistent. I mean, like, hey, I've seen this before versus things that actually just deviate from that previously known normal behavior. I love how you answered the question with, I trust people, but not computers. <laughs> that was the most unique answer I think I've heard to that question. And then on the topic of human trust, so I've been spending probably my whole weekend thinking about this question. And I found this formula that really breaks it down. I think you'll find it really interesting. So the trust quotient is credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. And if we break these down, credibility is, you know, you have a strong background in what you're talking about. You have the knowledge and the know-how to, to back that up. Reliability goes back to what you were just saying about people having those actions consistently in a positive way. Intimacy, which is the act of vulnerability and transparency and things like that. And then divided by self-orientation, which is, are you focused on yourself or are you focused on others? And that combination is what makes up trust. And you could take any situation. I have yet to find a situation that this does not apply to. But I think in security, it's especially interesting. So yeah, I love that formula. I would challenge one variable in that, which would be credibility. And the only only thing why I would challenge that is at least the examples you gave were credibility based on pedigree. Mm. And I'm not not a huge fan of that because it it leans towards this idea of like, you know, arguments via authority, which in my opinion are just some of the weaker forms. Whereas, well, and you got to take take an example, you know, several examples. Like you don't necessarily, actually, you know, a great example because you were, you know, an actual, you know, analyst on a security team. And you think about some of the things that you've done as an analyst in the security realm, and you compare that towards an analyst in like the credit or, you know, credit risk area. You actually look at a lot of the same types of data. And the only thing I bring that up as an example is like, oh, well, you could imagine that, hey, maybe an analyst from a credit risk organization that, hey, they're just looking at, you know, credit worthiness or fraud from credit cards, et cetera. They probably could have the same trustworthiness as a security analyst, depending depending on the topic. So that's the reason why I would just challenge the credibility and maybe just challenge that to be expanded because credibility can be established in numerous different ways, not just via pedigree. So. 
I love it. I love the contrarian view. <laughs> so just to, to wrap things up for today, what are three pieces of actionable advice for security leaders that you'd give? Oh, wow. I guess one immediate thing would be if you are not a developer, if you do not know how to program, you have to do that. It's no longer an option. Being technical, in my opinion, is a requirement. And technical, being technical, and I use that term really, really broadly, because almost anybody in security, by definition, security is a technical discipline. So you have to embrace the technology. You have to become comfortable. You have to be familiar with it. You don't need to have your own. And it's actually funny because I had some people over, they were making fun of the fact that I have this, my rack here in my house and I'm like trying to rewire my entire house with cat six, et cetera. And they're like, well, Flea, why are you doing that? And part of it is like, yeah, yeah. I don't need, you know, all these different servers, but I need to actually still remain in technology. And so for security leaders, it's really, really important. So if you're not, or if you feel like you're weak, go back, take classes, take um, labs, you know, go do something like get one of the AWS certifications or at least launch something in AWS, get on the free tier, play around with it. If you don't know Kube, please, for the love of God, go out and actually learn about Kube. If you don't know the modern languages and the modern tech stacks, it's going to make you a less effective security leader. So that's actually number one. Security leaders need to be technical and need to be well-versed in the technology that we're currently using these days. Number two, and this is my personal mission, is broaden the net and broaden the ecosystem of security. We gain so much by having people with different perspectives and security. And in particular, if you are dealing with a company that deals with humans, which most of our companies do, having more perspectives on what kind of threats various different human populations face is critical to be an effective security team. And you can't do that if your security team is homogenous. And it's not just homogeneity from like a race or gender or whatever. It's a homogeneity around like just backgrounds and discipline. So maybe somebody that has spent time in the military, they're going to have a lot of perspectives on, on various different threats and things like that that you think about. Somebody who has spent a lot of time as a writer, believe it or not, it's like, hey, they're going to actually know a lot more about communications and a lot more about the subtleties about how language impacts humans and impacts their decisions around security. Somebody who's actually has a lot of experience with user, you know, user experience, period. Somebody who's actually maybe previously a designer. It's a great addition to a security team because they can actually say, hey, this little button you have here, that flow is not going to work well. And you're going to have tons of users who are not going to see that or not going to influence security uh, well, et cetera. So number two, it's just like, yeah, hey, thinking about actually broadening the viewpoint of your security team, but actually broadening just like what you're actually looking for from a staffing standpoint. And then number three is kill your internal security nihilism. Part of our jobs as security leaders is to keep that childlike enthusiasm and optimism that we had that got us into security. And I will argue this every single day. Every person who got into security got into it because they're an optimist. They fundamentally believe that something could have been better in the world. And it's like, hey, they fundamentally believe that, hey, you know what? There's a better way to actually secure this building. There's a better way to actually secure this application. There's a better way to actually keep this data private. We got into security because we wanted to see a better future. But it's easy for us to actually fall into security nihilism. And as a security leader, it is critical that you actually fight against that. We have to be the most optimistic people because security is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It is a long slog. You got to embrace the grind every single day. You got to wake up excited to come and actually do the security work. And that excitement, that personality, that energy they bring cascades out into your security team. So if you're a nihilist, 
as a security practitioner, your team is going to be nihilistic. And they're not going to be nearly as effective as a energized, optimistic, excited team. So that would be my top three there. It's like, hey, you know, stay technical. And if you're not technical, you know, polish back up. Number two is making sure you actually think of a really, really broad lens with regards to actually what your security team looks like from a hiring standpoint, because you need a lot of different perspectives. And then number three, stay positive, man. We've got to kill the security nihilism in in the industry. We can win. Security is winning. I think people forget about this. I remember what security was like in the 90s. I remember what security was like in the early 2000s. I remember what it was like in 2010. Security actually is getting better. And I think oftentimes people actually forget about that. Please, thank you so much. This has been an incredible 30, 40 minutes of, uh, of time with you. I really appreciate it. And I think everyone listening in will uh, gain a ton of insight from this conversation. So I really appreciate the time. Oh, no. I appreciate that. And I'm honored to have the opportunity to actually chat with you. These are great questions, man. Thanks a lot. This is fun. Yeah, it really was. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Detection at Scale podcast brought to you by Panther Labs. For access to the latest episodes, please visit our website at www.runpanther.io forward slash podcast. And for those interested in running Panther, head to our website, runpanther.io, to sign up for a free trial. You'll get a dedicated instance with the ability to analyze your security logs in real time at any scale powered by detections as code and sending into a very robust security data lake. Our goal is to make detection and response easy, scalable, and fast for you, the practitioner. Thanks. See you again next time.